All right. Well, we are in the process of looking at the principles involved in hermeneutics. These are things that you need to be aware of as you go through the process. When we finish discussing the principles, we'll get into the process. Uh, so we have uh, looked at the priority of the original languages um, because the originals were inspired. If you want to get the idea, you really have to get back to the original. Translations don't translate everything. There are things about the original language that are not translatable. Uh, we talked about things like that, like idioms and figures of speech and stuff like that. Um, the handout that I gave you earlier, the resource list has resources that will help you with those issues. Um, it's just a shortcut if you can get back to the original. Uh, things like grammar and syntax, if, if, if you know how the language functions, it's easier to get the point, but you're not going to see that in translations, at least not in the, the more interpretive translations like the NIV and, and others, where they just give you the idea. They don't really translate the original into English. They just transfer the idea. You're not going to get much help with the grammar and stuff from those kinds of translations. <clears throat> to illustrate the, the need for that, we talked about um, conditional sentences in Greek, and I gave you this chart that we went over, and uh, you asked for practice, so I gave you the this little handout to practice on this last week. <laughs> I don't remember asking. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, the point is, you know, to understand, this is just one example of why you need to get back to the original, okay? Because there are four different kinds of conditional sentences in Greek, and they all imply different things. And if you are familiar with the Greek, you get the point. But if you're not, you're not likely to get the point. But I mentioned that sometimes you can figure out from the English what the classification is just by the way the English is stated. And so that's what this is all about. We have these conditional statements. And um, the job, your job on this handout was to decide which um, classification these sentences fit into. Um, so if you have that chart, um, that homework thing, we can go over this. Um, all you need to do is, in the right-hand column, put a 1, 2, 3, or 4 to indicate whether they are first class, second class, third class, fourth class. So we did, we looked at uh, the first one last week as an introduction to how this works, but we didn't really finish it because I didn't want to cheat you out of the opportunity <laughs> to exercise your little gray cells, as Poirot said. <laughs> uh, if you didn't complete it, that's fine. <laughs> this will be a well, this, this, if, if you didn't have a chance to do it, this will be an example of how to do it, okay? So, yeah, I need the example. 
example. Yeah. <laughs> so John 5:46 in that chapter, Jesus has been confronted by the Pharisees, and he's called God his Father, making himself equal with God, and so they want to throw rocks at him again. They do the same thing in chapter 10. And so he says, wait a minute, look at the evidence. He points to the miracles that he's done and has shown them that they prove that he is who he claims to be. He is God. And he points also to the testimony of John the Baptist, who was his forerunner, representing him as the Messiah, as God. He pointed to the Father's uh, proclamation of his deity uh, and he finally gets down to scripture and he re references Moses and this is where we are in, in verse 46 uh, the Pharisees didn't believe that he was God so he's, he's made this statement to them he says <clears throat> if you believed Moses you would believe me for he wrote about me the Pharisees were the lawyers that is they were the experts in the Mosaic law the Torah the Pentateuch, the first five books, you know. They knew it, the law inside and out and backwards and forwards, you know. Moses was their guy. And Jesus is saying, well, if Moses is your guy, <laughs> you ought to know from what he said that I am who I claim to be. But the fact that you don't believe me you know, says something about you. So if you believed Moses, you would believe me. So what conditional sentence do you think that is? Just to review, first class means it's assumed to be true. Second class means it's assumed to be false. Third class, it's assumed likely. And fourth class, it's assumed unlikely. Okay, but when he's saying it, yeah. Well, you, you answered your own question there. <laughs> He is saying, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. That implies that they didn't believe Moses. <laughs> Therefore, they didn't believe him. So that's second-class conditional. It's assumed false. Okay. <laughs> and again, <laughs> because in, in English, this would be... <clears throat> Excuse me, equivalent to our subjunctive mood is a statement contrary to fact. They usually start with if. Okay. So if you believe Moses, then it's clear that you don't <laughs> because you don't believe me. Uh, the second one, 1 Peter 3.17, again, Peter is telling them how to live a holy life during persecution. He says, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right that the, rather than for doing what is wrong. We looked at an earlier verse in this chapter, verse 14. I think it's up here on the chart. So what conditional do you think that is? <laughs> no well I don't think so um, it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong is it likely that God is going to will you to suffer for doing good no <laughs> that's a fourth class conditional it's unlikely 
that God is going to will this for you. Now, as he said in verse 14, it's possible that this will happen, but it's not likely. God is not likely to will this for you. Uh, Matthew 5.29, he's, uh, Jesus is um, talking about the nature of the kingdom and, and the, the fact that being part of God's kingdom should be of supreme importance, and therefore, if, if there's anything that would keep you out of the kingdom, you want to get rid of that, that hindrance. No matter what it is, it's not worth it. So he says there, if your right eye makes you stumble... Tear it out and throw it from you. What class do you think that is? Somebody said it. <laughs> First class. It's assumed true. If your right eye makes you stumble, and let's say that it does, tear it out. Okay. Okay, so he's assuming, for the sake of argument, that that is the case. If that is the case, then this is what you have to do about it. First uh, Corinthians two eight in the first four chapters of First Corinthians, Paul's talking about godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. Okay. So he says here, the wisdom, and this is the godly wisdom, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. To me, that sounds like John 5, as well. Yeah, second class. It's assumed false. Yeah. <laughs> Again, this is subjunctive in English. If they understood it, tells you they didn't. Okay, So a second class conditional assumed false. Uh, Hebrews 6.3, and we have to get the context there, the first three verses. The writer is kind of chiding these people. He says, by this time you ought to be teaching the fundamentals of the faith, but you have slipped <laughs> in your progress to the point where you need somebody to explain them all over to you again. He's saying, we don't have time for that. So we're going to move on to the bigger things, the bigger issues, the, the, the things you should be thinking about. So he says, and this we will do, that is move on to the bigger issues, if God permits. Three. <laughs> it's likely... And I, I, I forgot to mention last time, third class conditional is a little bit different from the others. The first, the second, and the fourth all relate to the if clause. True, false, or unlikely. But the third class conditional doesn't relate to the if clause, it relates to the rest of the sentence. It is likely that we will move on if God wills it. It's not that it's likely that God will will it. So, <laughs> It's likely that we will move on. So if God permits it, then this is what we will do. So based on God's permission, it's likely that we will do this. And of course, why would he not permit this? Uh, Luke 4.3, Jesus is being tempted by the devil. 
The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. First class. He's assuming true. Because this is what Jesus was claiming. So Satan says, If you are the Son of God, as you claim, <laughs> let's say that you are, then prove it. You know, do a miracle. Of course, he did this very miracle later on with the 5,000 and the 4,000 when he, he made bread. First class condition will soon be true. And the last one, John 11... <laughs> yeah, you could do this by process of elimination. Um, yeah, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles. Third class. It's likely. Again, this refers to the stumbling, not to the if. So if anyone walks in the day, it is likely that he is not going to stumble because he can see the obstacles. But anyone who walks in the darkness is likely to stumble because you can't see what's there. Have you ever done that walk through room where you think you know where everything is <laughs> and you find out you don't? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Alarm system. All right. Any questions about any of that? The likelihood relates not to the if clause, but to the rest of the sentence, the result of the if clause. I know. Because that's, we're dealing with conditionals, and that's the conditional part of the sentence. That's confusing, I'm sorry. <laughs> but i just highlighting the if clause. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, I, I forgot last time to explain that. Sorry, Mom. So, again... You can figure this out by the English. It's kind of like backwards engineering. <laughs> if you know the original, it's a little easier, okay? Because you can go directly to it. Yeah, but I, I think you're. I think what you're saying here is that you can you can figure these things out by by context. Yeah. So when you see an if clause, you want to be able to examine the context and understand the intent behind uh, what uh, what was being said when those if statements are being made. Right. Okay, so, um, we also got into the second principle, which is the accommodation of revelation. That is, God accommodates revelation to our thinking. He has to dumb it down so we can understand it. And he presents things that we can understand. So, revelation is limited. We can't understand everything. He hasn't revealed everything to us. But what he has revealed is reliable. You can depend on it. It's inspired, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says. So we went over this last week. Uh, God uses language we can understand, so we have to allow for literary genres and devices. We talked about those genres, different kinds of literature. You have to interpret each of those separately because the, 
they require a different focus. They're different kinds of literature, so you have to look at them differently. And the literary devices, like poetic parallelism, we saw an example in Jude 6 where the parallel words help to define what they're talking about. We looked at chiasms, that little X that uh, helps tie things together. Um, tonight, we're going to look at a couple more of these, these um, literary devices, paragraph structure and the way lists are structured. So when you get to literary devices, you have to look at the way things are arranged on the page. And not so much what the words mean, but how they are arranged, because that's going to affect what they mean, how you understand it. <clears throat> so we looked at this one last week. This is the chiasm, the end of 1 Corinthians 12 and the beginning of 1 Corinthians 14. The end of chapter 12, he leaves his discussion of spiritual gifts and gets into his discussion of love, which is chapter 13. The beginning of 14, he gets out of his discussion of love and back into his discussion of spiritual gifts. So the, the little chiasm there is split in the middle. <laughs> the two parts of it are separated by chapter 13. <clears throat> so we want to go to chapter 13, if you have your uh, Bibles there. And we, we may get through this tonight. <laughs> We shall see. We're going to do a little bit of analysis. We're going to, to do some uh, hermeneutics on chapter 13. Um, and eventually we'll get to the literary devices and see how they help us understand what this passage is about. All right? And what I want, how I want to approach this is by dealing with a popular interpretation of verses um, 8 to 12. Yeah, I mentioned this last week that suggested that you might want to look it over. Okay. Um, this is controversial, which isn't bad. Controversy simply means there's a difference of opinion. I mean, it's no big deal. <laughs> Everybody has an opinion. Of course, these days you're not really allowed to have an opinion of your own, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, or if you do have one, you can't express it. Same speech. Yeah. yeah. Anytime you say something, somebody else doesn't agree. Of course, they don't realize that because they don't agree with you, they are actually committing hate as well. <laughs> yeah, they're doing the same thing. That's called the uh, tukokwe fallacy. You also, you know, you're doing the same thing. So if you criticize somebody else, you're criticizing yourself. Um, yeah, so um, just to get the context again, chapter 12, he talks about the fact that the gifts are given by God for the benefit of the whole body and they're all necessary. You can't do without any of them. And he's trying to address the improper attitude the Corinthians had about spiritual gifts. They were valuing gifts, you know, kind of like ranking gifts. What's the best one? And 
you know, the people who had the gift of tongues, wow, they were at the top, you know. And uh, Paul says, no, 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 all the gifts are necessary for the, the good of the whole body. Um, for edification, as he gets to in, in chapter 14. He tells them in chapter 13 that what they really need to focus on is love. It's the motivation for using the gifts. That's far more important than the gift itself. God gave you the gift he gave you because he wanted you to have it. You shouldn't be proud of it because you didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> and he tells them the same thing in another, another place about another issue. But you didn't do anything to get it, so why are you bragging about it? So love is a central issue, and then in chapter 14, he kind of applies chapters 12 and 13. He shows them how to exercise the spiritual gifts. Once he gets their attitude straightened out, he says, now this is the way you have to do it. So, uh, chapter 13 then, the first three verses, he shows them the supremacy of love. He basically says, no matter what gift I have, no matter how well I exercise it, if I don't do it out of love, it's meaningless. It's pointless. Love gives meaning to the gifts. The gifts themselves are not the issue. It's like in the first four chapters when he's talking about the, the schism in the you know, different, different cliques based on teachers. Some, some were saying, well, we follow Paul. Others, we follow Peter. Well, we follow Apollos. He says, the teacher doesn't matter. What matters is the message. Okay. Same thing here. It's not the gift that matters. It's the way you use it. It's your attitude in using it. Now, yeah. Is he using agape for, for love? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, and so that's verse, the first three verses. He shows that love is far more important than the gifts. Verses 4 through 7, he gives the nature of love. Love is focused on the other person, not the self. This is what the, the Corinthians really needed to, to understand. Because they need, we saw this in chapter 11 with, in reference to the uh, communion service. Some were being selfish and eating all the food, and others were coming later and not having anything. Same attitude here. You know, you think you have a better gift, and you're not concerned at all about the other people. You have that gift to help somebody else. So love is outward, not inward. Okay. And then verses um, 8 to 12, actually 13. 13 is kind of a summary. 8 to 12 primarily. He shows them why love is superior to the gifts. And he says that right there. We're going to read through this, and then we'll get back to the analysis. Time's up. <laughs> Five seconds. Verses four through seven show what? The nature of love. Nature of love. Thank you. Yeah. So why is love more important than the gifts? He says that in verse eight. Love never fails. <laughs> love is eternal. It never stops. But he says if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. And verse 9, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Love is eternal. Gifts are temporary. Why would you spend your time focusing on the temporary? <laughs> Focus on the eternal. That's why love is better than the gifts. 
Well, I guess for two reasons. One, the whole point of the gifts is to help other people. That's an expression of love. And secondly, love lasts and the gifts don't. Love is eternal, but the gifts are temporary. In verses 11 and 12, he gives us some analogies. Verse 11, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. How many things can you think of in your childhood that were really important to you then that you don't even think about anymore? <laughs> you know, kids are kids and adults are adults. Things change. Okay. Verse 12, for now, that's in our current situation here on earth, which is parallel to childhood in verse 11, immaturity. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, the word dimly there, <clears throat> really means as in a riddle. Uh, you know, riddles are not straightforward. You've got to think to figure them out. Since he's using the image of a mirror, they translate it dimly. If you know anything about first century mirrors, mostly they were polished metal, and you don't get much of a reflection, <laughs> not a clear reflection. So now we see as in a mirror dimly, but then when the perfect comes, back to verse 10, we will see face to face. Now, currently, I know in part, we're back to verse 9 again, but then I shall know fully just as I also have been fully known. So things are going to change. And again, 13 summarizes, but now, that again, again is current situation, now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Because love lasts. Faith and hope, they're good for now, but they're not going to last forever either. <laughs> they're not going to be necessary one of these days. I wish we'd get rid of that word abide. How many times do you use the word abide <laughs> in your daily conversation? It's an archaic word. <laughs> the, the problem I find with it, the only place you see abide anymore is in the Bible. And because it's, it's an unusual word, people invest it with all kinds of weird meanings. All it means is to remain. It means to be established. It's going to last. Right? It's not a super spiritual kind of word. You know, if somebody come, calls, and calls and says, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be in town. I need a place. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going to say, Well, you can abide with me? <laughs> no, you're not going to say that. <laughs> yeah, so wherever you see abide in your Bible, cross it out and put remain <laughs> over the over. That's what it means. <clears throat> okay, so he's showing that love lasts, gifts are temporary. All right. Now we're going to go into some analysis of this based on a misunderstanding of this passage. And it's a, a, an interpretation of this passage that I was taught in church and school. Uh, I've heard many teachers and preachers teach this. Um, but it doesn't work. <laughs> and it deals with this idea of tongues. In verse uh, 8, it says, uh, If there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. In order to avoid the excesses of the charismatic movement, 
which emphasizes the gift of tongues. You know, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. Some conservative theologians have looked to this passage to say that tongues no longer exist. The gift of tongues is over. It's not for today. Therefore, the charismatics are wrong. Well, those theologians are wrong. <laughs> Based on the way they use this passage, and we're going to go over that. Um, they, they focus on two things where it says tongues will cease. They focus on that word cease. And in verse 10, they focus on when the perfect comes. And they base their whole argument on those two words. But their interpretation of those two words is less than accurate. What they say about tongues being done away with, well, tongues are not done away with, tongues will cease. By the way, why do you think he limits his list of gifts here to three, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge? In chapter 11, he gave, or chapter 12, he gave 11 gifts. Why would he focus on just three here? I don't think they're three gifts. I think they're categories of gifts. Prophecy would be the edification gifts, the teaching, the preaching, clarification of God's word. Tongues would be those miraculous gifts, like tongues and healing and miracles. And knowledge would be the discernment gifts, the word of knowledge, uh, discernment of spirits. You know, John told the church in 1 John, test the spirits. And by that he meant itinerant teachers or preachers who are coming along and they want to preach in your church. Be sure they're legitimate before you let them in. <clears throat> had that experience at a church I attended ages ago. It's a small church, and some couple, two or three guys came through on motorcycles, you know, and they stopped on Sunday morning and said, hey, we want to preach in your church. <laughs> we said, well, we don't think so. <clears throat> you have to be sure what you're going to get <laughs> before you allow it. Okay, so discernment of spirits is one of the gifts he mentions in chapter 12. So these are categories of gifts. So tongues would be the more miraculous gifts. So the edification gifts, prophecy, and the knowledge gifts, knowledge, are going to be done away. That's the word katargeo. It means to nullify, to cancel, to uh, make ineffective, or to get rid of, to do away with. That's why it's translated that. So those two kinds of gifts are going to be eliminated. Something is going to act upon them from the outside. So to do away is an active voice verb. The subject is going to do something. So something from outside is going to stop these gifts. But tongues, it says, will cease. That's a different word, the word pa'uo. We get our word pause from that word to stop. It's in the middle voice, not the active voice. And usually, in, in the middle voice indicates <clears throat> the subject acting by or for itself or on its own. No outside influence. Okay? That's usually what the middle voice means. And so these theologians, they say, well, this is in the middle voice, which means tongues is going to stop all by itself. The gift of tongues. 
and why they focus just on tongues and not on the miracles and the healing, I don't know. Um, anyway, they say the tongues is going to stop all by itself as though it has a built-in cutoff switch. And there will come a time when that switch is activated and tongue, the gift of tongues will be no more. <clears throat> that raises the logical question, when is that going to happen? They take us to verse 10. When the perfect comes. Well, what is the perfect? They say the perfect is the completion of the New Testament. The reasoning is, they say, based on chapter 14, where Paul says tongues is a sign, they say that tongues was a sign that the preachers used to indicate the supernatural nature of the message. It was to verify the message. But when the New Testament was finished, there was no longer any need for that kind of verification. You have the record. You have the message. You have the record of the miracles that, that prove that this was God's message. So you don't need those sign gifts anymore. So when the New Testament was completed, those sign gifts ended. Emphasis of the middle voice all by themselves. <clears throat> I found seven problems with that point of view <laughs> in this text. You may find more. Okay. <clears throat> we may get through all seven in the next ten minutes. We may not. We'll see. The first problem, it, he does say in chapter 14 that tongues were a sign, but never were they ever a sign to verify the supernatural nature of the message. What they did, if you go back to the book of Acts, is verified the legitimacy or the genuineness of someone's salvation. And that happened only really three times <laughs> when each, each um, people group, a new people group was introduced to the gospel. When they accepted it, they spoke in tongues as evidence that this is the same salvation that was introduced on the day of Pentecost when all the disciples spoke in tongues. It happened in, that's Acts chapter 2, it happened in Acts chapter 8 when Philip is up in Samaria. Some people there believed and Philip sent word to the elders in Jerusalem and said, hey, we got some believers here. So they went up there, Peter and John went up there, laid hands on those believers. They received the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. And when they spoke in tongues, they were speaking in that language. Yeah, tongues are, tongues are regular languages. No, no. That's basically what I was going to ask. What about this glossolalia? Well, the word glossa means tongue. <laughs> Literally, that's your tongue. Okay. You got the epiglottis, that little thing in the back, at the back of the glottis, yeah. the back of the tongue. Yeah, so it's a language. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, the precedent for this, the you know, Jews from all over the world were in Jerusalem. And the disciples start speaking all these different languages. And the audience is saying, hey, I know that language. That's where I grew up. <laughs> was it a miracle of hearing or a miracle of speaking? No, it said they spoke in those languages. The fact that the people heard those languages was because they were speaking those languages. And they could understand. Yeah, and they could understand. Then where did the Pentecostals get this on what, what sounds to us like babbling? That's that's an excellent question. I don't know that they I don't know that they have a, a an answer for that. Well, some have said that it's like a, uh, it's 
yeah, but the, the Bible never says anything about that. Yeah. So they, they, they might point to 13.1, where Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Yeah. So yeah. they would say, this is the tongue of angels. The problem is, <clears throat> even when angels show up in the Bible, they're speaking languages that men understand. Right. Um, there's no evidence anywhere of a, they may have a unique language, but we don't see any evidence of that mm -hmm. um, in the scriptures. And, and tongues is another example. Um, you had mentioned um, abide. Um, tongues is another example that, that today it has taken on mystical meaning. Right. When it just meant language, that's that's all it meant. It just it, it was just language. It wasn't. It didn't have this kind of mystical <clears throat> sense to it. That really was brought in by the Pentecostal movement, uh, first wave, early 1900s, um, when they started doing these kinds of things. Now, just as an observation, um, and I, I did a I, I did a you know, research project on these three chapters, 12, 13, and 14 and had to read a book um, by a charismatic arguing the position for the Pentecostal movement. There's a guy named R.T. Kendall, he wrote a book called Holy Fire, and he was defending the, the exercise of, of tongues. Um, but he was also, he also considered himself reformed. But it was interesting because he started off the book saying that each camp has something to commend it. He said the reformed movement really understand the Bible, but they don't acknowledge these supernatural gifts. <coughs> And then he actually said about the Pentecostal movement, they freely exercise these gifts, but they don't really know their Bible. And it was interesting that he actually said that, because that, I think, has been very characteristic of the Pentecostal and charismatic movement. They don't know the Bible, and, and really their religion and, and their experience of Christianity, it is, it is exactly that. It's more of an experience than it is something that's informed by knowledge. Okay. What, what do you do with people that you know to be sincere, dedicated Christians who are speaking this yeah, yeah. heavenly language. I, I mean, I, I cannot believe that they're all faking it. Well, you, you can be sincere and yet sincerely wrong. Yeah. I mean, that's, but, that's what I always say. But what, it, is this, what is this that happens there? How do I, you explain what happens? Uh, uh, there, how do you explain that experience that they've had? Well, you know, they, they tell you that you need to practice. Yeah. Yeah. And so, the, you know, you get your mind in a blank sort of state, and then you just open your mouth and start saying something, and pretty soon you're speaking in a tongue, a mystical language. So you can get in the habit <laughs> of doing that. A and it was, if you want to learn how to speak in tongues, you write to us, and we will send you a, a, a paper on how to speak in tongues. It would be a gift. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. So. I don't know what, I didn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> but you should have. But it was, it was a learned yeah. experience. Yeah. They, they say that everybody should speak in tongues. Right. And you can easily go to the end of chapter 12 and show that from Paul's argumentation, not everyone's supposed to speak in tongues. Yeah. Right. So, so even the emphasis of speaking in tongues is that, that everyone should speak it is, is unbiblical. So mm -hmm. we, we have to compare what it is you think you're sincerely right about versus what the Bible clearly teaches. And, and, and this, is, um, this, is, okay, this is what I, I, I observe. There are people that are very sincere. They go after this, and, and they seem like lovely people and whatnot. You know, I, I think about the spiritual war, and we're going to get there to, when we when we get to the end of 
Ephesians, we're going to really talk about the spiritual warfare that's going on around us. You, you know, when, when Satan is throwing those flaming arrows at us, my, my interpretation of that, I mean, Satan can't steal our salvation. We know that. I think what he, he can do is make us less useful for spiritual battle. He, he can take us off the, the spiritual spiritual battle. And, and I think, unfortunately, I, I do believe there are truly saved people within this movement, but I think they're not useful for the, they're, they're not being nearly as useful for the kingdom as they could be because they keep emphasizing experiences that don't really lead someone to a knowledge of God. They may have a knowledge of God, but they're so busy with these experiences that there's only limited um, usefulness that they are that they end up serving to the kingdom. Yeah, and, and so, yeah, now you, you, get, you, get, you get a lot of beliefs like that. But, but what I would say is that for people that are caught up in this movement, I would encourage them, read the scriptures, because that's what the Bible calls us to do. The Bible doesn't call us to spend time practicing these supernatural gifts. And, and even if we do, chapter 14 emphasizes the fact that it's supposed to be for the common good. It's supposed to be to edify one another. And the other thing that they'll point to, um, Paul in chapter 14 talks about, if you if you speak in tongues and there's no one to interpret, you're basically just speaking to God. And they'll use that as per best philosophy. Yeah. No, that's just saying that no one there is no one there to understand you except God. Yeah. I mean that's that's all it's saying. Um, and so there's there's a there's a sense of that, you know there's there's priority, and then there, there's also knowledge of the scriptures. You, you know when you know the scriptures, you understand the priority that they place on it is not biblical, but also. Guys, you need to know your Bibles. I mean, I, I've met someone who, I met a lady who claimed to be a prophet for over 15 years, and she didn't know where the book of Exodus was. Um, she had to look up in the table of contents where the book of Exodus was. Now, I don't mean that as a demeaning, a demeaning statement, but when you go to the Bible and you, you see prophets of God, they knew God's word. You know, they were not ignorant of God's word. So what I would encourage uh, those folks is, um, you know, your, your faith really seems to be sincere, but I would really encourage you to get into the scriptures and read the scriptures and, and, and don't place, and, and, and try to really examine what you're placing your priorities on. Because the priorities, like I said, when, when you read through Ephesians 5 and Paul talks about being filled by the spirit, when you get to Galatians 5 and, and Paul talks about um, being, you know, what the fruits of the spirit are. Um, spirit... The spirit-led activity, spirit fruits, uh, you know, spirit-producing fruit, has nothing to do with these kinds of gifts. And and you know, you go to Matthew seven twenty-one, and, and what does Jesus say? Um, you know, it's not everyone who says Lord, Lord, who will be, you know, who will be, who's going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of the Father. There'll be people at that time who, you know, they say, but we have cast out demons in your name, we have performed miracles in your name. You know, these are some of the supernatural gifts, and Paul is, and, and Jesus is saying, you know, even some of those who, who appear to have these supernatural capabilities are, are not going to be saved. Because, and, and one of the reasons why that I would argue is that when it comes to these supernatural <coughs> gifts, it's never commanded. <coughs> Speaking in tongues, it's just a gift that's, that's given to you. It's not, Paul never says, go and speak in tongues. He doesn't say, you know, Go, go, go and, and prophesy. I mean, if you have that gift, then you're going to use it. But the commands that we have is very much towards edification of the body. You know, but it requires a knowledge of the scriptures and an understanding of the scriptures. So. That's Paul's point in chapter 14. <laughs> yeah, and, and when I read this book, Holy Fire, there was actually a chapter there on how to speak in tongues. 
And he said that you have to be willing to be um, to, to, to put yourself out and look foolish in order to speak tongues. You know, so, you know, la, 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 you know, just, just kind of do that over and over again. And then he even gave an example of a bad example, saying that someone, someone suggested that you should say a bunch of Japanese words and just say them in rapid succession. And he said, well, that's ridiculous. And I'm like, oh, wait a second. I mean, you're, you're, you're saying that you've got to put yourself out there and look ridiculous, but you're saying that that's too ridiculous. So, you know, where, where's, where's the line? Yeah, I mean, the problem is none of those um, recommendations are biblical. Because either you have to get there or you don't. You don't go and, and just start speaking gibberish in order to start speaking in tongues. And ultimately, what does Paul say? I'd rather speak five words with my mind than a thousand in tongues. Yeah. Now, Paul, he had good reason to speak in tongues. I mean, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was going mm -hmm. out to all these areas where a lot of people had spoke a lot of different languages. So for him, I think it, it served a, a very important function for him to, to be able to share the, the message of the gospel with people that may not have spoken the native tongue that Paul spoke in. Um, but, uh, but ultimately, within the church, and... Chapter 14 goes on to say that tongue is assigned to unbelievers, not believers. In other words, it's used to help spread the gospel and to confirm the gospel. Uh, but it's not meant as a sign for believers, meaning it's not meant to be something that's necessarily practiced within the church unless there's people to interpret it. Um, so, yeah, I, it's um, the, the practice is just unbiblical. I mean, that's, that's what I would say. The, the practice, the emphasis is unbiblical. And, um, and I certainly... Um, I'm a cessationist. I'm, I, I call myself a practical cessationist. And I would call myself that because, as Terry is pointing out, a lot of people will argue from verses 8 through 13 that this is proof that these things have ceased. I'm not convinced by looking at those verses. But certainly I think if you just look at how they were practiced in the book of Acts, compare that with what's going on in the church today, it doesn't match. It, it just doesn't match. And even we, we had talked about how there are stories, and I've heard them, Terry's heard them. There are stories of missionaries out on the mission field. Suddenly they, yes. they, they can speak a tongue, right? They can speak in a language of some natives that they never spoke before in order to share the gospel. Um, that's not the same thing as the gift of tongues. That, that's an act of miracle by God. Yeah. So the gift of tongues was something that, you know, you could continue to practice over and over again. You know, that, that could have been a one-time miracle, and, and certainly God can do that. He can do that on the mission field. And I hear all kinds of stories of miracles that that God has formed, people just showing up out of nowhere, providing exactly what's needed for the, at exact times. Um, this is not to say that God doesn't perform miracles, um, but the gifts as they're being described here um, in, in the letter to Corinth, um, you know, they, it doesn't match what, what, we're, what we're seeing today, and especially when you see it in the book of Acts. And you had pointed out in the beginning of the book of Corinthians, you know, what are they divided upon? They're divided upon, some people are following Peter, some people are following Paul, some people are following Apollos, and some people say they follow Christ, right? Well, we know Paul wasn't there because he was writing the letter. We know Peter wasn't there, right? Peter was in, in Jerusalem, um, later in Rome. Um, Apollos wasn't there. If you go to the end of the book of Corinthians, Paul says, I wanted Apollos to come to you, but he's, he wasn't willing to at this time. Um, so I, I, I think what, what was going on, and this is just, this is just me, I'm, I'm reading between the lines here. But, I mean, I think a lot of these gifts were in operation in places like Corinth because there was not, um, there, there was not a recognized teacher who could, who could properly teach them. So you have people that were given the gift of prophecy, people that were given the, the gift of tongues in order that they could kind of fulfill that role until someone like a, some, some sort of elder or teacher can come to place. That, that's just, I'm, I'm reading between the lines there. But that, that, I'm just looking at that and, and recognizing that the leaders that they um, followed uh, from a humanistic point of view, none of them were there at that time. 
Um, and, and at the end of chapter 14, Paul does something brilliant. He says, if there's any prophets there, let them affirm everything I've told you. Right? <laughs> so in other words, if any prophets um, deny what I said, then you can deny him. And that was perfect, because that, that basically, that was Paul's way of just establishing order right there on the spot, um, that they would have to follow his, uh, his guidelines. Uh, would, you, would you agree with that? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I, I get a little bit hot about this. Because <laughs> yeah. um, I, I mean, I, I do, you know, I, I have met people that, you know, they bring this accusation, <clears throat> well, you're not spirit-filled, you're not spirit-led. I, well, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous, because the Holy Spirit gave us the Bible. You, yeah, you are partaking in the ministry of the Holy Spirit just by studying the Bible yeah, right. and by trusting the Spirit to, to illuminate uh, your mind to the Bible, to, to understand what it means, to, to study it, um, to, to, to pray over it, um, and, and to use it to apply it to your life so that you have the fruit of the Spirit that's described in Galatians 5. Or you, you start um, exercising your, um, you know, the, the, the Spirit-filled activities as described from 518 through the start of chapter 6, where, where it talks about submission and all that kind of stuff. So. I don't think there's much question about the fact that um, this debate is divided and um, yeah. caused disruption in many, many churches. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, I will point out one other thing, and, and this is an argument uh, towards church history, and you never want to rely on church history alone. Um, but if these gifts um, are really needed for the church, why were they not in operation until the early 1900s? Because they, except for a few <laughs> periods of time, they really were not in operation. The early church fathers recognized that these gifts were no longer in operation. And then all the way until the early 1900s, suddenly in the 1900s, you have the first, second, and third wave of Pentecostalism. Um, and, and then the question is, okay, so what changed in the 1900s that suddenly we needed? Well, I mean, God, by his sovereign will, might decide that he's going to give us those things. Um, but the characteristics of um, that, that, that are coming out of these churches, I don't see, I don't personally see um, more fruit of the Spirit coming out of these churches than I do out of those churches that just devote themselves to the study and understanding of Scripture. You know, in fact, I, I see very much the opposite. Like I said, there's just a lack of knowledge. There's a lot of, there, there's a lot of, um, there's just a lot of unbiblical practice that's going on, and I, I don't see how God would honor His uh, word by by having a bunch of people just do things that are unbiblical. Yeah, so Paul's argument against the Corinthians because of their attitude towards spiritual gifts could apply to the Pentecostals. They have the same problem. <laughs> they have the same issue. Okay. Yeah, right. So just to wrap up, um, the first thing against the view that tongues would cease when the New Testament was completed is that tongues were not assigned the same kind of sign they say they were. Okay? Miracles, healing, and other things like that were used to verify the message. And we can look at scriptures that show that, but tongues was not. So there are six more problems. <laughs> we're not going to get to them tonight. So we're not going to be here next week. So the week after, we will get back to this. So uh, let's close in prayer.